0: start to do that at this time bring those bags down men amen all right I'm gonna pray and then we'll prepare to give Lord we just thank you Lord for every person that's in here pray that you would just bless them God that you'd open up the windows of heaven and that you'd pour out a blessing God that they couldn't contain all for your glory offer your kingdom and the mission that you have set before us, and so God, we pray that you just take this offering, God, and just further every purpose that's in your heart for this church to accomplish, and we just thank you for it, in Jesus' name, amen, and amen. All right, we're going to be looking in Revelation chapter one, we're going to start in verse nine, so if you want to go ahead, um, that's going to be the last book in your Bible, the very Go to maps and turn the other way for a little bit until you see (laughs) Revelation chapter 1. And we'll start in verse 9. When it it comes to the Bible, what I've found is, is that there's some questions that don't get answered there. Don't turn me off yet. Hear me out. Hear me out. There's some things that God... And some questions that God just does not uh, give, us, give us the answer to. And I think, and here's a question that I think we all get caught up in. And this question gets in the way more than any other question, I, I think, when it comes to uh, serving God. Right? Uh, why that question right there is sometimes debilitating because what happens with a question is is sometimes when a question doesn't get answered you can't move on until that question gets answered you feel like in your heart but when God brings us into a relationship with him we're really stepping out into a lot of mystery um, how many of you ever had God speak something to you, but then you mapped it out in your mind how it was going to work out? And then how many times did it work out the way you mapped it out in your mind? Right? It's like God will give you the answer and then you'll try to figure it out and answer the answer, you know, step into the answer. And instead of a, you know, <laughs> here's point A, here's point B, Right? Instead of this, uh, it looks more like this. But God gets you here. He gets you here. And so part of this journey that God is teaching us is bringing us into a deeper relationship with him where we would know more of him, know more of his heart. Because if we don't have the character of God and arrive at the place he wants us to be at, if we don't have the character of God when we get there, of what profit or what purpose are we going to be to God once we get to the place that he's got for us? And so life has got to be lived forward, right? But it's only understood looking backwards. So faith calls us to live forward, without the answers and to keep stepping forward trusting that God's going to be there where sometimes these don't get answered. Sometimes the wise are just not going to get answered. And this is where we get to please the Lord. The Bible says the only way to please God, you know the only way to please Him? Faith. It's the only entity that pleases God. Hebrews chapter 11. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because he who comes to God must first believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, right? So who's going to come to God has got to come to God in faith that he's going to reward the thing that he said he was going to bring about in your life without the blueprints on how to get there. So life is lived forwards, but only understood sometimes looking backwards. Have you ever went through just a tremendous struggle in your life and thought, man, why did I have to go through that? And then you remove yourself a few years down the road, and you look back, and you go, ah. That's what God was doing. And you couldn't see it at the time. But God was up to something. He was doing something in your life. Um, so there's a lot of questions that don't, that, that don't get answered. And that's kind of our text today is kind of pointing towards that reality. That as we're looking to why, I, I want to try to in my own life, and I hope you go on this journey with me, that I wipe why, the question why, out of every area of my life. And instead, I step into this other place called trust and faith and begin to walk on this journey uh, with God. George MacDonald said this, Jesus didn't come to take away your suffering. He came so that your suffering would be like his. Because you know what would be worse than suffering? Is to find out that your suffering wasn't redemptive and it didn't count. Suffering's one thing, but if it's working something for me, I can deal with that. But if I step into the realm where suffering's now meaningless, boy, that's tough. That's a harder reality. So the scripture doesn't come in and say, all right, I'm going to remove all suffering. Scripture comes in and says, I'm going to take suffering. And I'm going to take what the devil's trying to do against you, and I'm going to turn it on him and turn it into some kind of good redeeming quality. So why? The why question is just not going to bring much of a a peace to your life. So try to wipe the why out of your mind and step into it and say, God, you're either God or you're not, and I'm trusting that you are. And so I'm stepping out into faith, into mystery, without having to know all the answers, to know that you are good and you're going to work all things together for your glory to all those that love you and are called according to your purpose. So Jesus doesn't remove all the evils of the world immediately. It's going to. There's going to be a time where he's going to wipe every tear, fix all the stuff. But immediately, that's just not, not how it comes down. But what God does is something is something interesting. What God does is he doesn't answer always why something had to happen. But he enters into the mess with us. It's like he's like you're not going to know why but I'm with you. You're not going to understand the ins and outs of everything about your life, but I'm diving into the pit with you. That God would be more concerned with presence and being a part of your life than he had remove every obstacle that comes our way, right? Like, I think we like that mountain be removed and cast into the sea. But I've climbed over more mountains than I ever cast into the sea. Can we just be honest? Right? But it was through that climbing and in that struggle is where I found God in a deeper and richer way than just snapping my fingers and everything being perfect. And presence is better than answers anyway. Have you ever been going through something and then a know it all sets down and tries to tell you everything that you should have been doing and what you ought to do? Right? Was that enjoyable to get all the answers to your life? You just wanted somebody to be there for you, you wanted presence. You didn't really want answers. And so what obstacles and and suffering and trials do is they reveal to us, am I content to sit here in my relationship with Jesus and be okay? Or is my relationship so shallow, I just want answers. So God enters into this mess with us, and he doesn't tell us why it's happening always. He doesn't always immediately fix it. He just says, I'm here. He says, I'm here. It's kind of like Job's friends, right? They've all got the answer for why Job's suffering. And was that a great relief to Job? <laughs> Job's got answers, his buddy's got answers. And then God shows up. And what does God do? Starts asking Job questions. (laughs) And what keeps Job in the dirt putting his hand over his mouth and say, forgive me of saying one word. It's because he entered into presence. And he realized, God, you never left me. You were here the whole time. I was talking like you weren't in the room. But you were there the whole time. And I thought you left. See, God wants us to talk to him like he's in the room. All right? He wants us to trust. So presence is is much more helpful than always getting the answers. That's why God says, I am the I am that I am, or the one who is and was and is to come. The one who is the present and now reality that God would say, I am here now. Hebrews 4.15, we don't have a high priest that can't sympathize with us, with our weaknesses, But our God was tempted at all points, yet without sin. So God understands what it is to be rejected, to be hurt, to have family turn on him. He knows what it is to be wrongly accused, He knows what it is to be murdered. You're God. He entered into the mess. So God doesn't answer why. But he gives us something to work with. He gives us the cross. So the answer to every human suffering or any suffering that you'll go to, you start at the cross and you work backwards. So you say this, if God took the murder of himself and made it good and ruled and reigned through that kind of a suffering, then whatever suffering I'm going through, he'll take and use for his good and glory and turn it back on Satan onto him. So we always forget the why, just go to the cross and say, wait a second, if God made that good, then he can make this good. So when we remove the why and just press into presence and know that he's here, that he's with us and we'll win. Yeah, we'll win. So God's not distant, he's really near, really, really near. Alright, so let's dive into the text here, uh, verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9. The, um, the first, first eight verses, it was really an, an introducing Jesus, and in this verses we're going to find uh, two other characters in the grand drama of the end of, of times. So we're going to find about John, and then we're going to find about the church. So really, Revelation's got three main moving parts, and that is Jesus, John, and the church, okay? So uh, here, John introduces himself, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the Isle of called Patmos on account of the word of God And the testimony of Jesus. Would you notice something about that first verse there? It says, I, John, he says, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in who? Wow. Okay. So the three things in Jesus are what? Tribulation, (laughs) the kingdom, and patient endurance. See, sometimes winning looks a lot like patient endurance. You know who wins? Those who endure to the end, right? So This thing is a marathon. This ain't a sprint. If you sprint, you're going to run out of gas. You better dig your heels in and say, you know what? I'm just going to stick this thing out and see what happens. So these are the three things that John says that he is brother. So he puts in a relational element here with those who are suffering as well as him. He says, I'm your brother. And he says, I'm your partner in three things. Tribulation, the kingdom of God advancing, and patient endurance, waiting for God to bring it about, okay? So John is saying, I'm a part of this reality with you. And then he's gonna find out Somebody else is there, too, and that is Jesus. Now, you've got to be thinking about this, this kingdom element here. This kingdom element's brought up because you have the empire of Rome all around you. The Pax Romana, the, the, the highlight, the, the, the mightiest empire that has ever existed has surrounded you, and you're exiled on an island and your friends from where you left are having to go through persecution too, you probably feel like you're losing. And sometimes in life it feels like you're losing, right? So in that moment, John points them back to the kingdom so that they understand that they're a part of a reality that is moving forward no matter what. And that the Roman Empire is not going to stand against the kingdom of God. So remember what I said. You live your life forward and you look back. What do you think about when you think about Rome now? Ruins? Spaghetti and meatballs? Come on, somebody. (laughs) Pizza? (laughs) Right? You think you see it could be, maybe, potentially. You look at it and you say, man, it looked like an old old high boot on a woman's high boot or something looking at that. You don't think of it as conquering the whole thing. So John with eyes of faith understood. Now here, flash forward, here we are in Hot Springs, Arkansas, talking about Jesus. Right? So which kingdom went forward and which one went backwards? So sometimes we can't see it. All he could see was the Roman Empire. I'm in prison. Uh, My people's being persecuted. But Jesus' kingdom is still going forward. still going forward. Right? And so he's bringing them into this reality with them that this Roman Empire is temporal, it's temporary. Every human empire is temporary, but there's one empire that's not, and that's the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is going forward. So here he is, their partner, their brother, sharing in their same sufferings. Now, other than that, we really don't know a lot about Patmos. It's an island in the Aegean Sea uh, that's basically just a mountain shooting out of the, uh, the sea, um, now I think there's a church there and some other things based upon uh, the tradition of, of John being there. But, but really not, not, wasn't a lot there. And there's really not a, a lot of facts about what John's experience was like. We can assume it was some kind of penal colony to where they would send people to exile. Um, so John's basically saying, I'm in this with you. Now, verse 10 here. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Okay. So this is the first known instance in the history that we get the Lord's Day written down. So there's some controversy about this day. Yeah. And what this is really meaning here. The Lord's Day was Sunday. Okay? But when you see Lord there with apostrophe S, in the Greek language, this isn't a genitive case or or a showing possession. It's not like this is the Lord's day. That that apostrophe S in the form of language that that's in, uh, the neuter form of that language would be like this. You know when you go to somebody's house and they have like a, a name above their door, like a piece of wood, like the Stevenson's or like the Wilson's? It's kind of like that. It's like in honor of or in honor to. So probably what Sunday was used for by the ancient Christians were, um, they would use it to honor the resurrection of Jesus. So they probably had two services. Given the fact that early Christians were Jews, they would honor the Sabbath on Saturday. And then the first day of the week, called the Lord's Day, either when Jesus resurrected or when they found the tomb empty. some Controversy there. But on that day, it was in honor of the Lord. Now, there's another interpretation of this as well. There was a day in the Roman Empire called the Lordy Day. And on this day, the Caesar... Because Emperor Domitian is where it was kind of a worldwide persecution that he had. He was a lot like Nero, but he took it further. Nero was kind of persecution in Rome. Domitian was like persecution everywhere against the Christians. So Emperor Domitian had this day called the Lord's Day or the Lordy Day. And on that day, they would put a bust of that Caesar in different places. And everyone would have to come out and on that day have to bow their knee and say, Caesar is Lord, or Kaiser Curios. Caesar is Lord. So the Christians were faced with a dilemma. Am I going to bow a knee to Caesar, or am I going to be imprisoned and murdered by not bowing a knee? So this becomes the first mantra for the Christians Jesus is Lord. you probably heard that. That was the first mantra for Christians because they were either having to choose Caesar is Lord or Jesus is Lord. Christos kurios or Kaiser kurios. So some believe that this was the day when everybody was supposed to do that. And instead, John gets in the spirit on the Lord's day and finds out who the real Lord is. Finds out it's Jesus. So a couple different interpretations there. One preaches better. And maybe they're both true at the same time. I don't know. And now watch what happens. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So he hears behind him a voice of a trumpet, okay? So there's a lot of symbolism here going on. In Revelation. It's a lot of drawing on the Old Testament. So when he hears this trumpet, somebody acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures would have understood that this trumpet blowing was three times uh, in the book of Exodus. It's a trumpet blown and I think it's in 1916 in verse 18 and then in chapter 20 there's a trumpet blown. And each time it's when God is trying to get the attention of the people and he's laying out what his plan is and what what it is to be uh, serving him in that day. And so so when they hear the trumpet behind him, he's going to know, the the ancient mind's going to know, this is God trying to get my attention to call me to the mountain so that he can give me instruction. So this trumpet blows and he looks behind him And what he sees is, he sees who is the one with the trumpet. Because whoever's got the trumpet is going to be the Lord. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Okay, that's a theme throughout the book there, a title of Jesus clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The word there for a long robe would have been the same robe that a high priest would have wore. So when he turns around to see who's blowing this trumpet, when he looks, he finds out it's Jesus. And when he uses the word son of man, he's recalling back to Daniel where Daniel refers to the Messiah who's going to come and he's going to call himself the Son of Man. So Jesus even referred to himself using that same language as the Son of Man. So what he's bringing the readers into reality of is that in Daniel 2, in Daniel 7, and in 10, and in Exodus, the one who was giving the law from the mountain, the one with the trumpet in his hand, is this man Jesus so they're being reminded that even though they're going through persecution even though it looks like they're losing you still have the king on your side and he's got instructions for you and he's not off the throne he's not not ruling anymore he is still in charge and his plan is still going forward in the earth verse 14 we get some descriptions here. The hairs of his head were white, white like wool and snow. This would be a reference to Daniel 7, 9, the ancient of days. His eyes were like flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. So we see stuff borrowed from Daniel 7, stuff borrowed from Daniel 10, a lot of imagery here, and what the image that John is painting is in comparison to the image that's in Daniel 2. I think I got a picture of that if you've got it. Yes. Do you remember this described in Daniel 2? If, you've, if you're not, that's okay. We'll just kind of... That Daniel has a vision, and in this vision, there was a head of gold, right? There was a chest and arms of silver. See, it starts with the, with the most valuable and begins to work its way down to less value in different, different aspects here. So the chest of arms and, and silver, that would be the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. Belly and thighs of bronze, that's the kingdom of Greece with Alexander the Great when he was the next kind of world leader on the, on the scene. The legs of iron would be uh, like ancient Rome, right? And then this feet of iron and clay is thought to be this this future kingdom that is that is going to come. Now what happens in Daniel two is is there's a rock that starts rolling down this hill, and this rock starts out small, but it begins to gain speed and begin to and to begin to pick up steam, and then it lands at the feet of this statue and crushes it to pieces. So what God is saying is this, is that my rock is going to crush every other nation that is standing in front of me. Now fast back to where we're at in the text. When he describes Jesus, it is a reverse image of this statue right here. It's Jesus and his kingdom in comparison to the kingdoms of this world that are coming to an end mixed with iron and clay. Jesus' feet are made out of burnished bronze. In other words, nothing's going to crush him, and his kingdom is going to get better and bigger as time goes on, while the kingdoms of the earth get weaker and more fragile as time goes on. So when he sees this, he's thinking, Daniel 2, and wow, this image is going to replace that image. That makes sense? Is that okay? Okay, we're okay here. Everybody okay? So verse 16. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So there's seven descriptors here we get of God. Five of them have to do with his face. Two of them are hands and feet. Hands, he's got stars, feet of burnished bronze, hair white like wool, sword coming out of the mouth, flame of fire. What's it saying here? The description of the face represented blessing and relationship. So the five features of his face lets us know that his face is still on us and his blessing is still on us in our life, no matter if we're in the middle of persecution and getting the wrong end of the stick and his hand is still involved and his feet are still involved. So he's given us a picture here, a relational picture to understand what it is to be the people of God. Who God is, what his agendas are and how involved he is in our lives. Um, that was like the old uh, the Hebrew blessing. I put it in here numbers numbers chapter 6 verse 24 through 26. Yeah, I think that's right. It says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious. Do you know what blessing is? Being blessed is having the face of God in your life. Yeah. You read everything through your face. I can tell if my wife's happy or sad with me. I can just look. I can say something and go, "Ooh, that didn't go right." Um, I take it back. No, um, right? The face is relational. It clues us in. He says, "My eyes are like fire for you. My hair is white like wool for you." Not much wool there, but I'm hoping there's. Bob, get over here. You got a good head of hair here. Jesus is in here. What are we even talking about? I'm sorry. So the idea is this. The powerful, untarnished Jesus is here with the churches, not in a weak form, but in power and in majesty. So I don't care who's in charge. I don't care who gets elected next year. Jesus has still got feet of bronze, hair white as wool, eyes of fire. And if the church will get a hold of that, it doesn't matter who's in charge. We'll show up and show out, and we'll walk in power. Amen. I endorse this comment. Jesus 2020, that's where I'm going. 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. That seems kind of odd because remember, John's the same guy that laid his head on Jesus' chest. If you would have thought anybody would have recognized Jesus, hello? John, but Jesus in such a glorified state, he just is in fear. So he probably went from being afraid of being in prison and afraid of empire to now being more afraid of something more glorious and more awesome than the Roman Empire. So what do you do when something more glorious than the king that stoned you in prison and what do you do when you come into contact with something more glorious? You fall to your face and you beg for mercy. But Jesus puts his hand on him and says, don't be afraid. Even though Jesus is so glorious and so majestic and so beautiful, he puts his hand on her back and says, that ain't what this relationship is like. I need you to get on your feet. I got something I've got to talk to you about. Fear not means he found favor. Isn't it great to know that he lays his hand on you and says, Fear not, you're safe here. Verse 18, And the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels or messengers of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the churches, Jesus is in the midst of them standing, remember, and the stars as messengers He has in his hand. Yeah. So he's letting us know he's still involved with his church. That though we feel weak and alone sometimes and though that we feel like is this even working? What is even going on around here? Jesus is in the middle. And his messengers are in his hands. And There's some things to follow as well, but but we'll get there. So John really wants to put an emphasis here on the one who was dead, but is now alive forevermore, the eternal one. By the way of his own death and resurrection, he holds the the keys to death and Hades. So he's got the keys. So he's basically saying to us, um, he's in charge he's got this life he's got the afterlife he's got the is, the was, and the is to come he's the A to the Z he's got it all so he's saying though it feels weak and powerless I need you just to trust me that I'm still on the throne that I'm still in charge and that I've stripped hell of all its power Oh, the only weapon that Satan has against you is unforgiven sin. That's why Satan's always bringing up your past. Because he doesn't know your future. and Satan ever brought up your future to you? <laughs> you know? He might have tried to scare you at times but of the future, but he doesn't know it. He doesn't know it. All he can do is keep bringing you into why. Why? Why? If God loved you, that would not have happened. If if that, why, 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 why? And God says, no, I make suffering redeemable, and I get in the middle of it with you. So the question that God answers is this, am I alone? No. That's God's question that he's answering all throughout Scripture. So Christ is depicted as powerful, priestly, and present. So three good P's there. I should have coined that. Powerfully p- powerful? Powerful, priestly, and present. So who's God in your life? Powerful, priestly, present. started with a P I would throw that one in there but there's no P there so John tells us that Jesus partakes of God's identity and his reign so what is it saying to us Jesus is Lord he's still Lord he's still in charge he's still working things out in your life he's still in the middle of the candlesticks You know, he probably wants to kick them over sometimes. He's still got his messengers in his hand, although he might want to chunk them every once in a while. He's in the middle. He's priestly. He's powerful. He's present in your life. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for each and every person that's here, Lord. God, no matter what we're going through, you're in charge and you win. And if we're with you, we win with you. So, God, anybody struggling today or feeling weak or feeling defeated, God, let them look up and look into your face. Your eyes are a flame of fire, a sword in your mouth. God, you're mighty to save. You're so mighty. So, Lord, give my friends strength and peace today. Set them on fire for your glory, God. And let them walk with a new confidence, not a pride, not an arrogance, but a boldness to know that they win. That they win. And that their portion in you is tribulation, the kingdom, and patient patient endurance. So, God, we endure the tribulation. Citizens of your kingdom, God, by your spirit, give us the patient endurance to see it out to the end. We thank you for everything that you're doing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.